England has had a long-standing radio program and now a podcast called Desert Island Discs. The premise is that a guest would come on and they are to imagine that they are stranded on a desert island somewhere. And all they can bring with them are eight songs, discs, a book that would be encouraging to them, and a one luxury item. And so whoever the guest is, whether that's a celebrity or a person of renown or a public figure, the program is designed to help the audience get to know who they are. What are the songs that are of interest to you? Tell us the story behind them. Why is that particular song meaningful? What was going on in your life at the time? Tell me about the book that you would bring. And so this is, as I said, you can tell from the title of the show, Discs, uh, that this is pretty, pretty old, and, but it keeps on going. And, uh, and I, I want us to kind of take that and use that as a springboard for a, if we were going to play that and we could only take eight scriptures with us to the island, what scriptures would you pick? You can't choose the whole Bible. It's not playing fair, but, but what are your eight meaningful scriptures, passages from the Word of God that have encouraged you, challenged you, served you in good stead, turned your life in a, in a completely different and better direction? You know, there's all kinds of scriptures that might be an offer from Genesis 1 and 2 that talks about creation to some aspect of the gospel, the Lord's passion and His resurrection the Ephesians 2 that talks about we didn't save ourselves, but it's God's grace. To Revelation that says that this is what awaits us, those who are faithful to the Lord. Some of you are already going to the Psalms. You're like, well, what about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. And I want to say, yes, we want to go to the Psalms because the Psalm that we just said together responsibly, Psalm 139, consistently ranks, if you want to think of it that way, as one of the most encouraging and challenging psalms that's in the Psalter. And I want us to spend our time this afternoon looking in that specifically, because there's so much that does encourage and so much that challenges us. Now, I'm going to go a little bit section by section so that we see who God is as he's, his truth is unfolded in this scripture. There's actually pew Bibles if you want to follow along, page 444, because I've looked it up. That's where Psalm 139 is. And I'll just start with the first six verses. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, me to attain. And in that section, we see that God is the one who knows us. He knows us not partially, not a little bit. He's not remote. You know, there's a whole deist theology that was pretty prevalent in the 17th and 18th century, uh, certainly in the, in the U.S., and the idea was that God just sort of wound up the world and he left. He's kind of, he's out there somewhere. But that is not the God who's portrayed here. The God that we see here is the one who searches us, who knows us. He looks for us. And not just us as kind of like the people, but us, John, us, Benny, us, Jason. Each of us specifically. 
He knows us, and He knows, look how complete the knowledge is. He knows when we sit and when we rise. He knows our going out and our lying down. He knows when we go to bed and when we get up. He knows when we go to bed and when we hit the snooze alarm. He knows what we like and what we don't like. He knows when we're irritated. He knows when we're happy. He knows when we're happy. He knows when we're not. He knows when we take a second helping and we shouldn't. He knows the snacks we prefer at the end of the service and the ones we don't. If there's any in that latter category, please see Vicki. But he knows us so well and so detailed and so intimately. And frankly, that can be a little because we don't like as humans to be known that well, do we? Until we test it out, until we John Powell, uh, Father John Powell, who wrote the book, why am, I f- why am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am, speaks of five levels of communication that go with any relationship. Now, the, the, uh, the fifth level is the starting point for him, and that's small talk. You know, it's just like, hey, did you see the game? Yes, I saw the game. Don't tell me the score. Uh, f- level four is factual info. What'd you do this weekend? Well, I got together with some friends. I have a relative coming over. We're going to go out to dinner. Number three is where it starts to get a little bit more interesting, ideas and opinions. Now you're beginning to risk a few things, and particularly in this climate, in this culture. Here's my idea. Might be safe. Here's my opinion. Oh, now you're taking a big risk because you don't know if that opinion is going to be shared. But then it gets even riskier still because the next uh, phase, phase two, is actually feelings and emotions. Like, oh, this, can I display my irritation or my anger? Can I display my happiness? If I broke out in a dance, what would people think? And you know, anybody who, is, who has a deep friendship or a relationship, or when you think back to when you were dating the person who is now your spouse, you went through these phases, didn't you? Factual info, where are you from? What's your family like? What are you, what are you studying? What's your major? What's your job? Ideas and opinions, okay? But feelings and emotions. When did we have the talk about how I'm feeling about you? More importantly, I want to know what you're feeling about me. And so, and then the fifth level is, or the first level actually, is deep insight. That place where you just click, where you know that there is a real depth of connection, of friendship or relationship here. You see, to be known is actually to be loved. To be known is what we were made for. And so while to be known can be scary because at any one of these phases, we, you know, it may not work out or they don't like our ideas or opinions or they don't like our feelings and so they just kind of keep us in the, the back, the, the previous phase or we do that to other people. There's risk that's involved. But to be known by God in the way that is described here with all that intimacy is really to be loved. He knows us in every one of those phases, and he accepts us. And so this is not an academic theological thing. I mean, this is called, if you're a theologian, they would call this the omniscience of God, his all-knowing. But it is very much a relational concept and a a relational way to access this. So he knows us. Uh, Here's what he, he knows. He, He knows us that we might know him and know and experience his love. 
and he knows us so well that we would, be, we would do well at times where we feel like he doesn't know us or honestly when we're in those more self-centered places and we don't want him to know us or we don't want to know what he knows about us. We would prefer to do our own thing. We would prefer to call a timeout on the relationship with God, take a break for some period of time and do what we want to do. But he loves us too much. And there's times where that has huge consequences. If you're reading uh, through the lectionary for morning prayer, for example, you know that we're in Genesis. Uh, January 4th was Genesis 4. Genesis 4 is about Cain and Abel. And Abel is a shepherd, and he is the one who raises flocks, and he sacrifices those, brings a fat offering before the Lord, and the Lord approves his offering. And Cain is a farmer, and he brings grain and the produce that he has grown, but it is not accepted by the Lord, and we are not told why. But Cain gets angry, and he is downcast. And the Lord knows this. Before, as it says, even before I know a thought, you, before I say anything, you already know what I'm going to say. Before I think something, before I get in a mood, before I get into a place that's difficult, you already know that, Lord. And the Lord loves Cain so much that he calls him out. Why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? And then out of that place of love and concern, because he knows if Cain continues in that, there is destruction that is around the corner. And so he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. He's not blaming Cain. He's not doing anything other than calling out the place that Cain is and the place that isn't a good place for him or anybody else. But we know the story. We know that Cain doesn't master it. He gives in to his anger and he kills his brother. And yet God still does not strike Cain down. But Cain is so afraid of being uh, chased and hounded and ultimately killed for that that the Lord says to him, I will, he provides some measure of protection over him. The Lord is merciful, but he uses the knowledge that he has. He knows more about each of us, and he knows more about me than I'll ever know about myself. And the same is true for you. And he, he knows that, that we might know him. He knows that, that he might warn us away from the foolishness that is so bound up in our sin nature. Here's what A.W. Tozer says in The Knowledge of the Holy about this about those who recognize that knowledge and they flee to God. It's like, Lord, you know me. I, you've got something I need to hear. And they lay hold of, of his forgiveness and his salvation. He said, and to us who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our heavenly Father knows us completely. This means that no talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to bash us or expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us. Since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Like, you knew all that about me? I don't even want to admit that stuff to myself. But God knew and he called us to himself because he already had a plan to take care of it. So his knowledge is what we need. It is his knowledge of us by which we experience his love. Let me read the next verses, 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. 
If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine the day. For darkness is as light to you. The presence of God is ever with us. And it is independent of any circumstance or any darkness that we may feel. The presence of God is, is with us regardless of geographic separation. Sometimes we go far away somewhere. You, you know, as a kid, you go to a school weekend away or you go to a camp or you do something. It's like, hmm, I kind of like it at home, but is God with me there? <clears throat> you take a new job. Is God with me there? You're looking for signs of his presence in new ventures. He's with us wherever we go in this world. He is with us in whatever emotional state we may find ourselves. And so much of the Psalms is giving voice to our emotional place and still either looking for God in that or discovering him in the midst of that. So there is no place geographically. There's no place emotionally. There's no place historically that we cannot feel his presence. What do I mean by historically? Well, there's things that happen to us when we are younger that shape us and, and they have shaped us in terms of who we are now. Some are positive and some are negative. Some are the, the way that we have been able to live life in a way that is life-giving and blessed and honoring to him. And other things that have happened are things that we're still processing and still wrestling with and still suffering through. And God is present in each and every one of those things. Sometimes what happens to us has been quite challenging or really confusing. And it's natural to ask the question, Lord, where were you in those times? And this psalm, amongst others, provides encouragement for that. There's no place that we have been in our life that has been outside of his presence. What we need to do is to discover just where that presence, what did that presence look like and feel like? When, when we were in those hard places, those dark places, was he there? Can you show me, Lord, yourself in that time? I've been through that process through good scripture, meditation, good therapy, and that I can tell you that that is helpful and essential. And so much of healing just comes from saying, where were you in those times? N.T. Wright, the theologian, I liked so much of what he writes. He wrote a book called The Case for the Psalms where he's trying to, to encourage us, the body of Christ, to read the Psalms and not just sort of pigeonhole them into kind of this nice poetic part of the Word of God because they have such depth and such power. But he describes in that book how the Psalms have ministered to him. In his mid-30s, he was teaching at McGill University in Canada, and he went through, a, by his own description, a pretty dark time of depression. Really tough, really hard. And he speaks specifically to Psalm 139 and how the presence of God was huge for him processing that, working through that. He had a counselor that could help him with that. But the combination of the Word of God and somebody to walk with him that embodied the presence of God in that real place shows us just one example of the value of that. The presence of God is what we need. The presence of God is what we always have. And hard times and difficult circumstances can obscure that but he's there nevertheless. 
verse 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Back to verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Screenwriters of movies or shows these days will often talk about an origin story. This is pretty popular in, in the, the superhero kind of stuff. The origin story is how that, how that hero got their superhero powers. What was going on in, in the background? Why was Batman Batman? Who was, who was he before he was rescuing Gotham? Why was Magneto a bad guy? Or was in the mutants? Or what, was he really a, a bad guy? Or was, did something happen? There, these are origin stories to help explain who the person is who's in front of us and why they are doing what they're doing. And that's a good, useful construct, I think, to look at these verses. You have created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The Lord knows us completely. The Lord is present with us always. And the very fact that he made us, this is our origin story. This is who we are. This has such power. I mean, just listen to the imagery or look at the imagery here. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We can explain the process of of gestation of how a a, a baby is born and the process. that, That is a biological and beautiful thing, but it doesn't replace the fact that God is the agent behind all of this. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My inmost being, the word for that is actually, it's the Hebrew word kidneys. And then for that, in, in the Hebrew culture at that time, that meant your emotional place. This is like, this is who I am, that temperament, that like, yeah, that's, you know, I've got three kids. One is like this, the other is like that. And the other. So that's, this is the Lord's doing who knits us in. There's as much uh, nature from God as there is nurture from parents. He created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame wasn't hidden for you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And earlier when he talks about being hemmed in and you're, these are, these are like, the, when the Lord hems us in, it's like he holds an infant. When he, his, his hand is, is with us, it, it's a, 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 an image of protection. The Lord is this loving parent. Our origin comes out of this place of amazing love and power and capability. There's times where we need to to grab a hold of that and remember that. But there's times, and I think increasingly so in our world, where we need to communicate that. Many people, many people we love and care about, friends, colleagues, um, people in your neighborhood, they have in their minds a different origin story. Maybe they don't have an origin story at all. All we are is dust in the wind, to quote Kansas. It's dating myself a little bit. Um, some people have this sort of Darwinian 
kind of mindset or worldview. Well, we just sort of form somehow. Doesn't matter how astronomical the odds, nevertheless, we are here and our origin is, you know, science can only explore that so far. Or my origin story, more increasingly in our culture, is what I decide it is, what is important to me. And I'm going to rearrange or arrange my friendships and arrange my interaction with others and arrange how I interact with the world based on whether they support who I am and the way that I define myself. I get to, Tim Keller, by the way, talks a lot about this in his uh, book on uh, controversy. Um, it's a podcast, series of podcasts on the things that are, I think it's, is it Controversial Christianity? I can't remember the actual title, but um, I'll send it to you if, if you like. But it's, he, he talks about the issues of identity, he talks about our understanding of morality. So much of this is based on our story of origin, based on the fact that God has knitted us together in our mother's womb, based on the fact that he is the author of our life and he is also the perfecter of our faith. So part of taking this message and bringing it forward is to share our origin stories because it is from God with those that have some alternative. Because that alternative, and this a good point that Keller makes in that, is that it's never going to satisfy. It requires such an amount of effort to keep it going that it'll eventually become exhausting. But we know the one who has made us, who formed us in our mother's womb. And it's, it's our joy and our task to share that. To conclude, uh, commentators always trying to understand why the psalmist wrote what they wrote. This is a psalm of David. So they're trying to understand why did David write this psalm in this way? And, and most of the opinions or most of the yeah, scholarly opinion is that he wrote it this way because there was something that was going on for him, some, some ordeal that he was going through that God brought him through successfully and so this is a psalm of thanksgiving. And they think the ordeal had to do with some false accusation, something that he was accused of that he didn't do, or something that he knew was unjust. And certainly David did go through those. He says, I've had to restore things I didn't take in another place. Jesus, of course, epitomized that later on in terms of the injustice that he suffered. But David, they think that David is looking at this, and he, it was so intense that all these things were somewhat in question. Like, Lord, do you know what I'm going through? Do you know me? Lord, where are you in the midst of this? Challenges and in, in, in intense times can be so isolating. Are, are, are you there? Lord, do you, do you have regard for me? Do you love me? And, and the Lord took him through that. And with the benefit of reflection and hindsight, he is now re-looking at that intense situation, that time that he was in. And he is concluding, oh, you do know me. You've always known me more than I could ever know myself. You were always there for me. Even when I thought things were darkest, you were there. It wasn't dark to you. And when I thought you didn't care, then I remembered you actually made me. And so I don't know what the next challenge was that he faced. But I do know that this psalm was an encouragement to him. And he didn't have to be, suffer as intensely potentially because he'd already seen his father be knowing him and out of that knowledge comes love. And being present, out of that presence comes protection and comes power. And, and loving him because, of the, because he had actually made him. When we know the Lord knows us, 
when we know the Lord is present with us and we know the Lord loves us because he has made us, the things that he allows in our life, we will be able to to persevere through and to come out the other side. Amen.